Welcome to Hard Knock Life, episode 108. I am your host, Keith Chow. Later in the episode, I will share my conversation with one of the stars of the hit CW series, Supergirl, Mr. David Harewood. I actually had this conversation with David last week, but and it was supposed to post last week, but got a little bit delayed. As you know, as you may know, The Nerds of Color was supposed to be part of Universal Fan Con in Baltimore, Maryland over the weekend. Long story short, Universal Fan Con, which had been two years in the making, suddenly imploded one week before the start date of the convention, stranding hundreds of people who had bought tickets, dozens of vendors who were en route to Maryland to sell their wares, people who had paid for non-refundable plane tickets, people who had hotel rooms and Airbnbs that they couldn't get their money back. So on Friday, when this transpired, April 20, I guess April 20th, it's hard. It feels like many years ago. Uh, it, was, it was only a week ago. I was reached out to by Uraeus of Black Heroes Matter, who said, who was also slated to vend during FanCon. And he basically said, There's, we should do something about this. So I said, I agree. Um, he mentioned he had a partner who had access to a space. And we agreed to meet at that space the very next day. So on Saturday, April 21st, this is one day after everyone found out about FanCon's cancellation, I met with Uraeus and Andre Robinson, one of his partners in the Black Heroes Matter who also runs Carbon Fiber Media, and several other community leaders at 1100 Wakamako Street, which is a building in Baltimore that used to house the Under Armour Corporation. Um, In fact, the seventh floor of 1100 Wakamako was the Under Armour headquarters. And apparently, we had access to that space. Uh, we, We met with the owners of the building, uh, they took us through a tour of the third floor where people would come in from the garage. They took us up the freight elevator to the seventh floor and showed us the three massive 10,000 square foot spaces that we could hold an exhibition hall for exhibitors. We could hold a room for panelists and another room to do, you know, music, cosplay, um, so we had we had all of this space, and within hours of walking walking through it, we sat down and decided that we would throw together a pop up, and we called it Wicomicon. We just put an N on the end of the name of the street, and we brought in Kara Horn from the Blurred Girl. She basically was our ringleader, keeping the trains running on time throughout the week. Patrick Strange came in to oversee the entertainment space, making sure we had music artists, cosplayers. He ran the contest. The folks at the Be A Boss app, CEO Elijah Kelly and Ezekiel Kelly overlooking all of the volunteers, making sure we had people who were dedicating their time to help attendees and vendors. And Chuck Collins coming in to oversee the security team using his experience in those matters basically came together within a week to make what comic-con happen on april 28th i think it's safe to say we were successful people had a great time 
the vendors were happy. Uh, we we had people like April Rain and Cheo Hogadari Coker come through. Um, if you scroll through the hashtag WaiComicCon on Twitter, it's all positivity. And in fact, there are multiple hashtags. A couple of people put an extra C in WaiComicCon, so make sure you're scrolling through both. Um, special thanks to fellow Hard Knock Media podcaster Melissa Slaughter, who came down from New York to help out at the booth practically all day. Uh, Jermaine Dickerson came through. He he came to WaiComicCon from Michigan and helped us out at the booth for a couple hours. And my friend Adam Starcaster, who is a video game developer locally, he came the day before to help set up, and he stayed essentially the entire day manning the booth. Um, so want to just give a special thanks for those three for helping out at the Nerds of Color booth specifically. And of course, I want to thank every single volunteer, every single guest, every single panelist, every single musician, cosplayer, celebrity, and most importantly, every single attendee who came and supported everyone at Y Comic Con. It was a beautiful thing. Um, we took something that that was negative and made something positive out of it. Hopefully, the story of that weekend will be Y Comic Con's success and uplift and not the other thing. So, that's all I need to say about that. But... That was my week, and because because we were spending last week holding down by Comic-Con, I was unable to post a new episode of This Hard Knock Life and Southern Fright Agent. So just letting you all know, those two shows are coming back this week. In fact, if you're used to getting Hard Knock on Fridays, you'll notice that This Hard Knock's coming out on Monday. We'll resume our regular schedule of me posting whenever I want, but usually Fridays uh, soon, but for now... This Hard Knock is going to be on Monday. We'll have a new Southern Fried this Wednesday, and the Southern Fried this Wednesday is actually going to be the live episode that we recorded at White Comic Con with Greg Pak. And uh, then we'll maybe have another Hard Knock on Friday. So basically, this is the Hard Knock that was supposed to come out last week. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I know you're tired of listening to me, and you guys want to listen to The Martian Manhunter. So let's... Circle back to last week when I spoke with David Harewood, who famously played David Estes on Homeland and is now John Jones himself on Supergirl. This is my conversation with David Harewood. On the show today, we are very honored to have the Martian Manhunter himself, Mr. John Jones, Mr. Hank Henshaw. Please welcome Supergirl star David Harewood. Hey guys, nice to meet you, Keith. Good to see you again. It is nice to see you. Uh, just quick for folks who may have been following us on the Nerds of Color, back in January, I believe there was an event in Washington D.C. where the w, uh, Warner Brothers and the CW brought all of their DC stars to celebrate the premiere of Black Lightning, and David and I met for the first time there. So you were very gracious. And I appreciate you coming back to the podcast. No worries. I'm too sorry it took so long. Not at all. Uh, it's perfect timing now that Supergirl's back. Uh, you guys took a brief hiatus to make room for Legends of Tomorrow. But uh, now you're back. And, and before we get into everything else, I just wanted to touch on the very interesting storyline that, uh, that they're giving you for the back half of the season, it looks like. One of the things that I love about the Martian Manhunter on Supergirl is the fact that you brought back one of the classic actors to play Martian Manhunter, Carl Lumbly, as your father. And... The storyline looks to be 
you know, it's very interesting because there's a lot of controversy now around the health of Stan Lee, for example, and, and elder care. And it looks like that's kind of a direction you guys are going on for the last half of the season. Can you talk a little bit about uh, working with Carl and, and what you guys have planned for the remainder of the season? I, I can't, can't say that the, that the, the, um, the Stan Lee um, <laughs> I- issue was foremost in our minds, but um, I think what um, I think what the original intention was was to tell a very human story mm-hmm. with one of you know DC's favorite characters, and the fact that he that Carl is all, has also played Jean um, just makes it even even more special for, for nerds and also for me because. You know, during my research for the show, I was listening to a lot of the just of, of that comic book and of, and of that comic, you know, interpretation. And mm-hmm. you know, to hear Carl's voice is extraordinary. And to, <laughs> we have these, we have a kind of John Jones off in between sh- in between shots. And we talk about his powers. And we talk about his, you know, what what he is, how how important he is as a character, his power, you know, what what he can do, mm-hmm. his relationship with Batman and the other Justice League characters. It's really been uh, fascinating for me to get to know the character through somebody who's also played him. But um, what you'll see through the latter half of the season is is um, uh, the, the two of us dealing with a very human and very real issue, and that is, of course, dementia and Alzheimer's, and um, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and I have to say, Monday's episode is just—I'm really looking forward to seeing it because it's. Um, it's a very Martian-centered story, and uh, um, it's it, it, it's just so much. It was so much fun to do, and uh, you know, you can really see um, how Carl, as a character, is you know struggling with the dementia, and and what what we have to do to kind of prevent it. So I think that's going to stretch right right through the, till the end of the season, and it's been just a real pleasure working with Carl, who's not only a lovely person but just a great great actor. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed my season with them. No, it's, it's great. And, and one of the things I also love about Supergirl is how they often cast legacy actors, uh, on the show. For example, you know, Dean Cain plays Kara's father and, and, and always alluding to the past of the characters on the show. Uh, Erica Durant's now playing, um, Kara's Kryptonian mother. And of course she's, she was on Smallville. And speaking of Smallville, I would love to have Phil Morris join you guys on Supergirl, who also one of the few actors to play a live-action Martian Manhunter. Uh, we need to do something with like the three of you together. Maybe he's a long-lost brother on on Mars or something. <laughs> Could be interesting. Yeah, why not? Um, maybe we should mention that to. Uh, I think I'll steal that from you, Keith. Yeah, go for make- it. Hey, if it happens, I'll I'll, I'll be more than happy to uh, let you take the credit because, uh, again, the 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 way you guys honor the legacy of these characters is amazing. And when it was revealed that you were the Martian Manhunter, I think. For those of us who are who actually consider ourselves fans of the character, if, who feel like he doesn't get enough credit, I think he's he's one of the core seven of the Justice League. And you know, there was a post that we had written on the Nerds of Color a while back before it was revealed who you were that the Martian Manhunter deserves his own television series. And in a way, you guys give us that, which is which is awesome. Yeah, you know, you know, of course, I'm I'm honored to play. The, the character, uh, really honored to play the character. It's, a, you know, I've got to be honest, it's a, a tad frustrating playing such a versatile and all-round character as a as a supporting character. Mm. It's because he simply uh, doesn't need <laughs> most of the time in the comic book doesn't need any help. You know, he's 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 perfectly capable of of doing things by himself. So um, 
there are times when I have to take a back seat, you know, I, or, or, or you know, have to find a way of not saving the day because it's not <laughs> a show, and that can be frustrating. But because, as I say, he's just such a wonderful, versatile character. But um, hopefully, you know, we can start exploring some more of um, Jean's abilities and um, his own mythology at some point during the show. Do you ever get to wear the actual costume when, when you turn into his Martian form? Or, you know, do, you, do they swap out for, since, since it's mostly digital, do they swap out for a stunt actor? Or do you have to put on the dots on your face and, and, and get to wear the costume? Most of the time, whenever you see the guy in the costume, it is me. Uh, except when it's... 12 o'clock at night and um i think the stunt the stunt guy can do it <laughs> but but most most of the time I, I try to do it whenever i can um but it, if it's something where there really isn't much acting required then it, it pretty much could be anybody so so i i do i do wear the suit and i do try and i think in the first season i was you know trying really hard to always uh, take responsibility for the the the, the, the di- digital side of Right. Of the character, but I, I, I very quickly realised that that was only going to send me crazy because um, <laughs> I just can't. Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes I, I'm on set and I'll see somebody walking past me, uh, you know, a double walking past me in the outfit, and I'll go, "Well, what's he doing?" And <laughs> it's, oh, literally, it's just one shot of him walking into a door, and it, it, that's all they need. So there are times when it can be, you know, anybody, but if there's a certain amount of acting required, then I try and do it myself. Well, and I'm sure there's a bit of a production to get into the costume and everything. And I know that oftentimes when you ask actors who play in these superhero roles, they, they often complain about having to wear the costume. But as a nerd yourself, is there a certain thrill you get when you do get a chance Dude, to put on a superhero costume? Listen, listen forget all that. <laughs> I love it. As soon as I walk into my trailer and I see my outfit, I'm like a little four-year-old boy and I can't wait to get it on. I've kind of realize now that i can get probably probably about three-thirds of the outfit on and there's always a little bit that i can't get on but i see my my wardrobe the wardrobe mistress will come in and go oh because you're, i'm sitting there in half the outfit just <laughs> love being in it and she comes in and finishes me off as it were so um, I, I love it. i think it's a real buzz yeah it's always sometimes it's always like these are the things you dream of when you're a kid and, and to hear like someone complain about, Oh, I have to be in this costume. It's like you're living the dream, man. Forget that. Forget that. I'm living the dream. <laughs> I, I am the only time, the only time when I perhaps have a bit of a whinge is when it's like minus two degrees outside. Right. Cause they didn't actually provide much heat. Exactly. <laughs> but um, that's the only time I get a bit grumbly, but uh, no, I, I, I love, I love wearing my outfit. So let's circle back to, I guess, 2014 when the show was getting, you know, was being produced, getting cast and everything. When you first went out for the show, did you know you were going to be Martian Manhunter or were you auditioning solely for the role of director of the DEO, the Hank Henshaw character? I was purely direct. I was purely there to be seen for Hank Henshaw. And at the time, they didn't know whether they wanted me to do Hank as a British guy or as an American guy. So it was really in flux. The whole thing in such flux and... It was only until I sort of said, you know, I sort of let them know that I was feeling a little bit, you know, insecure because I didn't know, they hadn't quite told me what was happening. Uh, and I, you know, as, as an actor, one wants to know what one's doing. Um, so I kind of managed to get it out of them. And when they finally told me it was John Jones, I was a li- slightly horrified because I was 
Uh, yeah, I had images of you know, playing Shrek for the next seven years. <laughs> you know, with lots of green makeup. Um, and I, but then he gave me the a pile of um, Marshall Manhunter comics and read them all. And uh, I, I was amazed at what a brilliant, brilliant character he is. Yeah, I, it's real. It's a real honour, you know. And I, and I do try and bring the gravitas. I try and bring the sense sense of um, honour um, to to him as much as I can because that's what I got. I got the sense that this guy was um, really knew what right and wrong was and had dedicated his life to, you know, the pursuit of helping others. So um, there's a the sense of honour to him that I hope right. to bring, a sense of soul that I hope to bring to my interpretation. So, so when you got the part, before you actually started filming, you knew eventually you were going to be revealed as, as the Martian Manhunter. Um, no. Oh, you didn't, didn't know. So when, when did you when did you get that script? Was that like right before episode seven, and and you were like, oh wait, I'm the Martian Manhunter. No, this, the, the 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 character was revealed to me at the start of the shooting of season one. Mm-hmm. So I shot the pilot without knowing I was going to be the Martian Manhunter, and then about a week before we started shooting season one. They told me I was going to be the Martian Manhunter. Oh, interesting. And then um, when the script came in for, I think it was episode seven. 11. Oh, seven, seven. Yeah, it was seven. Episode <laughs> seven, I was like, this is awesome. And, then, you know, and, and um, it was written by a very good friend of mine, um, Ted Sullivan. And it was just really fun playing that scene. survivor of my planet the last son of Mars my name is John Jones I, and it was great to watch the reaction from right. next door from, from, from the next day rather just looking online and seeing people literally screaming Oh yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> a guilty as charged. <laughs> it, it was fun, and you know, I, I hope I've been able to bring people, you know, a little bit of joy, Martian joy. Um, it would have been lovely to, as I say, have um, have um, explored his own mythology, yeah, a little yeah. bit more. But um, I'm happy to be playing the character. Well, you know, the thing about the CW and their superheroes, there's always room for spinoffs, and. Uh, but real quick too, before we move on to the next thing, with any kind of Superman nerd who was watching from the beginning and knowing that you were playing Hank Henshaw, I think a lot of the hinting at, you know, even after the pilot, there was a lot of hinting at this alter ego. And most people, I think, assumed it was going to be revealed that you were the bad guy and you were Cyborg Superman. Uh, I mean, which eventually happened in a way. Uh, so that that twist, I think, is it's still one of my favorite superhero TV moments when you when you turn and. And you and you grow into into Jean. Um, just, I think you need you need your own Martian Manhunter show. I'll put it. I'll put that out in the universe. Just so you know. Well, let's let's take it back to the beginning because you did say you are uh, you were also a nerd of color. Uh, growing up in England, what was the what what was the nerdiest things you were into? What what did you identify with from a from a nerdy pursuit growing up? Well, I mean, I read I read uh, you know I I wasn't familiar I wasn't as familiar with DC as I was. Marvel back in the day, so I read a lot of um, Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer. Um, uh, I read a lot of Incredible Hulk, um, Thor, 
Um, so I was really into, you know, the, you know, the, the Marvel guys um, from a very early age, and um, and then you know, get, get, getting into school, Monty Python, you know, <laughs> Monty Python for me was full of nerds, you know, yeah. very intelligent nerds, and um, intelligent nerds being very funny, and that's that's always been my my ball is is to I'm the kid who sits at the back of the class trying to make everybody laugh, you know, and maybe, maybe nerds are now very intelligent. I don't know, but I was <laughs> one of the nerds that used to mess around a lot. So, um, that, that was me as a kid growing up. I was very attracted to weird, weirdness, just yeah. weirdness. So, um, yeah, that was my thing. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, that you, you mentioned Monty Python, cause I know that you don't get a lot of opportunities to be funny. Uh, occasionally, I, what, what's great about your role in Supergirl is they do give you some bits of levity to play. Uh, not a lot, because, you know, John's a pretty straight-shooting kind of guy, but you have moments of levity. Uh, but you're mm-hmm. not really known, at least here, uh, as a comedic actor. Is that something you would love to tackle more more broadly? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did a little bit on a program show called Selfie, which was... Oh, that's right. You were on the John, John show and um, Karen Gillan show. You know, I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was so much fun. Yeah, so that show um, ended too early for sure. Way too early. So you know, I'm, 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 I have actually showed. You know, I, I did do a little bit of comedy in that show, and um, it was just so much fun. It really, really was a lot of fun. So hopefully, I can get back to that. You know, at some point, um, who knows when? Um, <laughs> just have to see. Well, because that's again back to the the Berlantiverse or Arrowverse or whatever they call it, the shows on the CW. Like, it's it's heavy action and often dramatic and serious, but they do give you bits of levity. Maybe you can do a crossover with the legends of tomorrow. Cause that, that that's full on comedy now. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> we, we definitely need John in more of the crossovers. That's another thing that, uh, we've yet to see like the full on justice league get together with, with you being at the forefront with Kara and Barry and, uh, and Oliver. So we, that's, I'll put that out there as well. We're just trying to get Dave more, uh, more shine on, on the CWs, that's the whole point of this podcast. At this point, <laughs> um, but so you were into comics, you're into Monty Python. You, you were also, do you consider yourself a gamer? Because I know you've done a lot of motion cap work for for video games in, in recent years. Yeah, serious gamer. I play. You know, I mean, I I don't play as much as I as I want to. Um, but every now and again, I'll find a game and find myself playing it for hours on end. So yeah, I, I, I do enjoy. Playing video games, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Were you were you a gamer when you were younger? I know that. I mean, games games have been, are on from, a completely different yeah. level now. <laughs> games since I you know Nintendo the first Nintendo came out. Yeah, and then it was the Sega, and then it was you know. So I've had lots of different consoles, and I've just had I've been collecting gadgets since I was you know twelve. <laughs> God knows where half of them are now, but um, I, you know I, I was always buying the latest you know bits and pieces because you know look what i can do so it was it was kind of it was always a lot of fun you know even the arcade games standing up in right. you know and up in the early 80s it was always space invaders and you know, i played that for hours <laughs> so yeah I've, I've been playing games in a while how is mocap acting different from from what traditional acting i know you do some of it you said in in supergirl with the when you're in the martian suit but but for Call of Duty or Battlefront, you're full on mocap. Is that is that a different technique, a different skill that you have to access when you do that? It's a slightly different skill because, of course, there's no camera. There's no point of view. 
So as an actor, you have to do, it's like acting in the round. Because mm. the, the camera is attached to your head, <laughs> it's basically capturing your face and your movements and your voice um, in wherever you're looking. So it, it's basically always a close-up. So you kind of have to uh, get into the idea of almost like acting in the round, always be, you always have to be performing. There's no, oh, the camera's not on me now. It's not, it's not my shot. You, you can't really think like that. You've got to think as though it's always your shot. And there's no, the audience isn't sitting anywhere. The audience is sitting literally just outside your face. So um, you just have to really, uh, it's a really fascinating way of working. I have to say, I think it's really quite fascinating because you have to maintain your truth in, in a way that you don't necessarily do on stage or screen. It's a kind of new hybrid of the two. It's it's like it's still you have to perform in a kind of box, as it were, and you know, with breaking. So if you're on stage, you know you've got four walls and an, and an audience, and so you have to kind of break that and know that if you turn your back to the audience, they can still see you. Mm. So it's, it's just a really interesting way of. Because there's a you know there's been a, a call for recognition of actors who do mocap work and you know thinking of someone like an Andy Serkis and uh, you know there had been campaigns for getting him an Oscar nomination for the work he did in Lord of the Rings or Planet of the Apes and the idea of getting your performance captured by computers as somehow different from getting your performance captured by cameras right like do you do you think that there's a demarcation between motion cap acting and stage acting and screen acting or is it all acting and it should all be equally you know i mean judging sure judging acting is already kind of weird i guess but like, it is <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure we're there yet i mean even I, you know one of the main reasons why they don't have the, the, the green side of the character on the show more or two reasons is one it's very expensive mm. uh and and b despite the advances in in um technology it's still it still kind of divorces you from the performance. Right. So it might, it might be me with tracking dots on, but it's still, it's still a computer generated version of me. And, um, it'd be very, sometimes very difficult to get any emotion on it. And even, even with Andy and, and I think he's done some amazing work, but you're still watching a monkey. You know, you're still, you're still watching a monkey perform. Mm a digital monkey perform and it, it, i know it's andy's great performance but it's still a digital monkey and um you 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 i, I i'm not sure we're there yet to kind of allow i'm, I'm it's still i'm sure we can be moved by it and I'm, but that's you know that's a movie and that's taking you know that's a that's taking year, you know months and months and and lots and lots of money to um to make it even more render it even more real it, it takes all that effort to make something which is unnatural seem natural right and there's so definitely I, like even with andy there was definitely more of a visceral kind of reaction to his character in black panther for example right because you actually see him on screen you see his nuances versus the character he plays in star wars where he it is like you said a digital creation and though he's giving a great performance it's not the same as seeing him there in live action Playing, playing a role. Exactly. So, so I don't think we're there yet. Where yet we being can, the optimal word, right? The way technology moves, who knows in 20 years where we'll be. 
Well, I mean, I thought Peter Cushing was unbelievable in Star Wars. You know, in, to see Peter oh, Cushing, <laughs> I, I thought I, I thought the rendering was incredible. Yeah, it looked it looked astonishing. So you know, who knows what they're going to be able to do soon? You know? <laughs> uh, so one other thing I wanted to get at um, on Supergirl and of course on Homeland, you play government director. You play like you know heads of heads of nefar- nef- nefarious is not quite the right word, I guess, but <laughs> clandestine organizations. Uh, and you're also very outspoken about politics on Twitter. Do you think that art and pop- popular culture cannot divorce itself from the politics of the time? Because there was often, a lot of times with the Nerds of Color, for example, where we specifically talk about justice and equality and inclusion um, through the lens of superheroes and science fiction. We often get pushback by people who say either... You know, we're social justice warriors ruining their favorite things, or these are trivial things we should worry about more. You know, we should worry about the way that the world is burning rather than, you know, the, the race of, a, of an actor on a superhero show. Where do, what is your opinion on the line between politics and pop culture? I don't know. I, I, I think pop culture works best when it has relevance. Mm-hmm. So if somebody, if, you know, if an artist releases, you know, catchy song, but it has a political message, but you don't really realize it's got a political message until you hear the lyrics. I think that's great. I think that's a great achievement because they've managed to tie together, you know, perhaps, you know, a, a catchy tune, but underneath it, there's a really serious message. People may not always want to listen to it. And sometimes it can be a little on the nose, but I, I do think that what makes, even when doing Shakespeare, what makes them powerful and relevant to a modern audience is when they're they maintain they seem to have a a, a familiar tone when the audience can recognize uh purely by what they're wearing or by you know where it's set they can recognize something that's familiar about the political times in which we live today i think that's when shakespeare becomes unbelievably relevant and, and even more powerful when you go and see a production of julius caesar and it looks like everyone's standing in Congress, or you look like or everyone's. It looks like everyone's standing in, you know, in in a in a kind of Stalinist, um, you know, Stalinist kind of fascist uh, uh, um, parliament. You know, w- when we can recognise those overtones, I personally think that drama kind of comes up, goes up a level. And it, I'm 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 reading an ancient text, but it's as if it was written today. Right. So I do believe that popular culture and where we are today i do believe we can't just continue you can't just turn turn a blind eye to popular culture or else it just will programs will just have no relevance relevance yes we can be fighting people from another planet every week but you know why not bring in elements of you know what's happening in america today why not discuss race why not discuss gun control why not discuss the meeting movement even if it means it, it's it's we're talking about you know characters on another planet. You know, I, I, but I, I I do think that it's you know drama modern drama works best when we see those modern overtones making it relevant to today. And that that bleeds into the idea of representation. Um, one of the things we talked about in DC back in January was the idea of you playing essentially. I mean, you, although the character is Martian, you're a black man portraying this character uh, again, an iconic DC superhero. And mm. and we you know, we were there for the premiere of Black Lightning. It was just a month ahead of Black Panther, which 
we had predicted back in January, which has become a global phenomenon, this idea that uh, people of color can finally fill these roles that were traditionally filled by white people is also part of that, isn't it? That people can look at these characters. When you talked about updating Shakespeare from modern times, isn't casting uh, non-white, non-male, non-straight actors in these kinds of roles also part of modernizing these ancient tales? I think so. I think you're right. You know, I think anything that we can do to, to, you know, you know, to increase inclusion and diversity, I think is a good thing. And it's, it's, it's astonishing to me that, um, you know, despite the campaigns to, 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 to have it not be a success and, and despite, you know, people saying for years that, you know, black movies don't work and they don't sell abroad and all the nonsense that they've been telling us. And, you know, I, 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 I just think that the success of Black Panther has proved that, you know, the kind of cardboard cutout hero that Hollywood has been using for the last, you know, 100 years may need to change. And, and rightly so, you know, I, I think that there's a far more diverse audience out there now ready to and ready and willing to watch stories um, with non-white characters, with female characters, with, with non-straight characters. Um, so, you know, I think that um, I think it's an exciting time to be alive. I think, you know, we're on the cusp of something that's very interesting. And, you know, I do think the industry itself is wrestling with what it should do. Uh, one, one can only hope that you know, the answer lies in diversity, inclusion, and uh, getting away from the norm. Right. And redefining the norm, too, I think. Redefining, is part of it. redefining the norm. What is the norm? Let's change what the norm is. It's, and kids are doing that anyway. Kids are, you know, kids are fully expect to see uh, stories with black cat and leading characters, black leading characters now. The kids fully expect to see those things. And, 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 and they, so they should. You know, in my day, it would be, you know, amazing to see a, a major Hollywood movie with a, you know, a, a, a black superhero in the lead role. So the fact that kids are coming out and seeing it and being inspired by it, I think just paves the way for future generations to see things just naturally and not be so, not, not like us, be kind of, oh, wow, look at that. It's just, yeah, that's how it should be. So, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're schooling a generation of kids who see this as just the norm, you know. And that's happening in the UK as well. We always focus so much on Hollywood, but also in the UK you see folks like yourself, like Idris Elba, like John Boyega uh, becoming, you know, massive stars. That's something that was probably unheard of for you growing up and, and to, to see someone like John Boyega in a Star Wars movie. Crazy. I mean, you know, uh, like I say, I mean, these youngsters are inspiring me. But what's really <laughs> funny, I, when I meet them, they say, oh, I grew up watching you. And now here I am getting old watching them. <laughs> it, it is kind of inspiring to see this new generation just with global aspirations out of the door, out of the door of drama school. They've immediately got global aspirations. We never had that. My generation didn't have that. We, you know, if we got a, if we got a role, lead role at the Royal Shakespeare Company, we felt kind of honoured. Mm. You know, they're looking even beyond that, and it's very inspiring to see. And you know, I have to say, you know, most of those actors that you just named have all had to leave the UK in right. order to, in order to achieve success. Once we've achieved the success, then we can go back and be regarded as stars but it's very difficult to become a star by being solely in the uk for some unknown reason 
Right. That's, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at. Like we we're wrestling with these issues in Hollywood, but what are these, what are the conversations? What are the debates in the UK? Because as you said, you know, uh, in addition to, to the names, I even think of like Asian actors from, from the UK, like Riz Ahmed or uh, Rahu Kohli, who plays uh, Ravi yeah. on, on iZombie. Like sim- similarly, they've achieved star status abroad. Although I think uh, Riz is is quite a famous rapper in the UK, <laughs> but but his his you know his breakthroughs came in HBO and of course on Star Wars now. So it is is it is is there a more are is there more gatekeeping in in the UK in terms of like the acting industry? There's a lot more gatekeeping, and you know we are only two percent of the population in the UK. Mm. We don't have the institutional power that black people have in the US. We don't have we don't have the systems in place. We don't have the people in place in order to move the dial. Uh, in, you know, in terms of in terms of in the boardrooms, uh, we don't have the, the you know we don't have. As I say, only now do we have a generation of stars who, should they go back to the UK, I think they would, we'd all struggle because there just isn't the work being created in the UK that could serve us all. So we, we, hence we all end up leaving and going abroad and finding roles in the CIA or roles in as you know as star troopers and you know galaxy fight, fighting the galaxy because those industries have a wider scope of a wider scope and you know we can find our place in the world in those industries. In the, the British industry is so small, mm-hmm. still very difficult for it to accommodate us as as leaders and and uh captains and leading roles it's still very difficult for it seems for britain to see us as um commanders and as captains and as generals and as we're still they're still having difficulty telling our story which is which i find bizarre which is amazing too because to think about as much progress you know as much progress that exists here in the states we still have so far to go as well, you know. Uh, so it's interesting to to hear that you look at our industry as, as almost a beacon, but then there's even even in that case the uh, the roles that are available to people of color in America seem to be, although they are definitely They're better than they are in the UK. Right, so that's that. the thing. That's the thing. That's that must be. Mm-hmm. That's a, simultaneously frustrating and amazing. Um, Which is why you know I mean I got into a bit of trouble last year. You know, when, when, I mean, Sam Jackson right. <laughs> made those comments about, you know, he'd rather see a real American brother p- playing Daniel Kaluuya's role. And I got into a little bit of hot water because I just thought that whole argument is nonsense. Mm. I understand, I can understand it that, you know, obviously, you know, black Americans feel as though perhaps, you know, black Brits are taking their roles, which is a, a shame that they feel, feel like that. But I don't believe that. You know, a, a black American role should be played solely by a black American. In any way that I feel, a black African role should be solely played by an African. Mm-hmm. If so, we wouldn't have had Morgan Freeman play, or we shouldn't have had Morgan Freeman play Nelson Mandela, or we Chadwick Boseman playing T'Challa, even or playing T'Challa, or or you know Denzel playing Thibiko. So it's a nonsense, and 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 the sooner people, you know, lose that notion, I think, the better. 
And, and it's interesting, too, because I think if there's anything that's quote-unquote colorblind, it's Brits taking American roles, because that's not just black Brits, right? Like, Henry Cavill is Superman, and Christian Bale is Batman, so, like, the idea of, of a British person playing an American person is not unheard of. I think it's interesting, too, because as an Asian-American, this is something that happens often in the Asian-American community, not necessarily Asian-Britons playing Asian-Americans, but even, like, different ethnicities. If you're Korean-American playing a Chinese-American, like Randall Park on Fresh Off the Boat, for example, there's often sometimes people saying, well, that should be, that role should go to a Chinese-American. And I fall in the camp of, you know, if the role calls for an Asian-American, I think open it up because we we need opportunities. Now, if the role is maybe asking someone to speak Japanese and, they, you know, maybe you put, you cast a Japanese person, but I feel like, especially for people of color, uh, we should we should play as many roles as we can get. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And um, the more the merrier. Yeah. Uh, well, David, thank you so much for joining us on Hard Knock Life. It is such an honor to get a chance to speak with you. As I said at the front, I am a huge fan of the work that you do. I actually stopped watching Homeland after season two because they killed you off. So. Me too, man. Me too. <laughs> Uh, but uh, big fan of you on on Supergirl. Uh, can can you give our listeners ways to find you online if they if they're interested in following you and, and seeing more of, of your online presence? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at David Harewood. You can find me on Instagram at, at David Harewood, and you can find my um, website um, DavidHarewood.co.uk. Uh, the best way is just to hook me up on Twitter, David Harewood. <laughs> of course, Supergirl airs every Monday night on the CW at eight PM. It's back. I think it's going to be all new for the rest of the season, right? You don't take any more. You took a long break already. I don't think there are any breaks left between now and the finale. Finish the season next week. So, David, thank you so much. And we will be rooting for uh, that Martian Manhunter spinoff. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My thanks to David Harewood for joining us on Hard Knock Life. Thank you out there for listening to the podcast. Follow the Hard Knock Media podcast at Hard Knock Media. And go to hardknockmedia.com to find Ask By Girls, Daisy Geek Girls, We're Not All Ninjas, DC TV Classics, and Southern Fried Asian, which is again coming back this week. Please rate and review the podcast on, on your favorite podcast machine. Follow me on Twitter at the Real Chow. That's the underscore real underscore chow. Go to patreon.com slash the nerds of color to support us. And uh, until next time, here's Adam Warrock and Chops to play us out. Directors, comments, and the lectures. Fanboys, professional artists, and professors. Maybe a nerd who's just like you, talking about the things that you like too. So I invite you to the NOC. In full color, you see me. The hard knock life. Comics, movies, and TV. Pop culture with a different perspective. Watch it on your screen. Hit play. So check this.